0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Let us pray. O God, who knowest us to be set in the midst of so many and great dangers, that by reason of the frailty of our nature we cannot always stand upright, grant to us such strength and protection as may support us in all dangers and carry us through all temptations through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And recognising that today commences the 70th regnal year of our gracious Sovereign Lady, Queen Elizabeth II, let us pray. O God, who providest for thy people by thy power and rulest over them in love, vouchsafe so to bless thy servant, our Queen, that under her this nation may be wisely governed and that thy church may serve thee in all godly quietness and grant that she being devoted to thee with her whole heart and persevering in good works unto the end may by thy guidance come to thine everlasting kingdom through Jesus Christ thy son our Lord who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Ghost ever one God world without end. Amen. <coughs> <clears throat> Welcome to all listening to this address. <clears throat> in today's two Accession Day sermons, we are considering some astounding Messianic prophecies in Jeremiah thirty and thirty-one. And in the former part three, first sermon of the day, Old Testament Messianic Prophecies three we have done so with some special, though not exclusive, reference to St. Luke 1. And in this part 4, second sermon of the day, Old Testament Messianic Prophecies 4, we shall do so with some special, though not exclusive, reference to St. Matthew 2. And there is some linkage in today's sermons with my sermons on what in 2020 was the fourth day of Christmas, the 28th day of December, the Innocence Day, and the uh, following fifth day of Christmas, the 29th of December 2020, as in the following part four, we shall be considering the prophecy spoken by Jeremiah, or Jeremy the prophet, in connection with Herod's slaying the children, remembered on the calendar of the Anglican 1662 Book of Common Prayer, as Holy Innocence Day, the twenty eighth of December. And the chronological dates I shall use are those of the precise chronology I give in my book, A Creation, Not Macroevolution, Mind the Gap, a Volume 2, Part 6. <coughs> there are a number of heresies that do the rounds and come back in various forms. For example, the heresies of Marcion are multifaceted, but include a denial of the predictive element of Messianic prophecy. Thus, uh, writing in the 2nd century AD in his work Against Heresies, a bishop, Irenaeus of Lyon in France, who died around 200 AD, says of the heretic Marcion, Marcion of Pontius alleges that Jesus came destroying the prophets and the law. He mutilated the epistles of the Apostle Paul, setting aside all the Apostles' teaching, teachings drawn from the prophetic writings which predict the advent of the Lord. <clears throat> Note those words, quote, <coughs> setting aside the prophetic writings which predict the advent of the Lord. Unquote. And so, among other things, the Marcionite heresy denies the predictive element of Messianic prophecy. And we find a similar thing in the claims of certain religious liberals who deny the predictive element of Old Testament Messianic prophecy. For example, in Old Testament Messianic Prophecies Part 1 of 3 December 2020, we considered the isaiah seven fourteen behold the virgin shall conceive, and we find that this prediction is denied by various religious liberals, for example, <coughs> James Moffat, who's been burning in hell since nineteen forty four in the Moffat Bible, renders isaiah seven fourteen as a young woman, and this type of thing is also found in, for example, the revised standard version, new revised standard version or today's English version. By contrast, we religiously conservative Protestant Christians recognize that biblical prophecies such as Isaiah 7.14 are predictive of the Messiah so that the holy prophet Isaiah records the words of God in Isaiah 46.9 and 10 I am God and there is none else I am God and there is none like me Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Or in Amos three, seven, the holy prophet Amos saith, The Lord God revealeth his secrets, his secret unto his servants, the prophets. And God incarnate tells us the reason for this, when he saith in St. John thirteen, nineteen, Now I tell you. Before it come, that when it come to pass, ye may believe that I am he. For prophecies are given, in part, that when we see the fulfillment of them, we may have the divine inspiration of holy scripture confirmed to our hearts and minds. For Jesus also saith in St. John 10.35, The scripture cannot be broken. You see, if the Bible says it, you can believe it. It's accurate. It's reliable. It's true. (coughs) In the previous sermon, we considered the Jeremiah 31 New Covenant found in the Christian New Testament or covenant. (coughs) But after the prophet Holy Jeremy speaks in Jeremiah 31, 10 to 12, of the Jeremiah 31:31's new covenant redemption by Christ and how in Jeremiah 31:13 God says I will turn their mourning into joy and comfort them and make them rejoice from their sorrow and in verse 14 my people shall be satisfied with my goodness saith the Lord. We then come to a very jarring verse indeed. For having first spoken in verse 13 of God's comfort and joy we then read in Jeremiah 31:15 Thus saith the Lord: A voice was heard in Rama, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rahel, weeping for her children, refused to be comforted. Um, because they are not. Firstly, uh, since a a voice was uh, heard in Rama, where is uh, Rama? We read in Jeremiah forty. Verse 1, that Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had let uh, Jeremiah go from Ramah when he had taken him bound in chains among all that were carried away captive of Jerusalem and Judah which were carried away captive into Babylon. Uh, Hence, uh, Ramah was a place of detention for captive prisoners from Jerusalem and Judah en route to Babylon in the context of the 6th century BC, Babylonian captivity, which ended in 536 BC. And Jerusalem was geographically inside of Judah in the south of ancient Israel. And so... In the words of Jeremiah 31.15 a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. In the immediate sense refers to lamentation and bitter weeping for those of the Jewish church who as part of the Babylonian captivity were being held in Ramah, detention centre for captives in Judah. But evidently uh, some of these <clears throat> captive prisoners at the Rama prison uh, rather than being uh, deported to Babylon had been killed there for jeremiah thirty one fifteen says that certain Jewish children were not um, uh, that is, were not alive anymore. Uh, secondly, if in uh, Jeremiah 31.15 Rahel is weeping for her children because they were not, who then, then who is Rahel? Now, <clears throat> historically there are diverse Hebraic uh, transliteration systems and pronunciations. For example, the Ashkenazi Jewish Hebrew dialect, the Sephardic Jewish Hebrew dialect, and the Western Christian Hebrew dialect. Now, in Hebrew, depending on one's transliteration system, (coughs) the middle letter of Rahel, which looks uh, something like a squarish upside-down U, is known variously as Heth or Keth. And uh, in the Greek transliteration of the New Testament, A a Greek letter that looks something like an X is used, known as uh, chi, and found, for example, (coughs) in the CH of the name of Christ. And in the Latin Vulgate, the name Rahel looks exactly like it does in English with this middle H letter transliterated with a CH in the spelling R-A-C-H-E-L, which in classical Latin would have a K sound, as when spelt in English with a Q-U and pronounced Raquel. Uh, But in Ecclesiastical Latin, when it comes before an uh, an E, as it does here, the the CH has a CH sound, as in uh, Cherub and as uh, found in our English pronunciation of Rachel. <coughs> and so Rahel, in the uh, King James Version's rendering of uh, Jeremiah 31.5, is one form of Rachel, which uh, <coughs> is the more common form found several dozen of times in the Authorised Version. Now, Rachel was the favoured wife of the patriarch Jacob, and of her, we read in Genesis 29:17, Rachel was beautiful and well favoured. And holy Moses says in Genesis 35, 22, now the sons of Jacob were twelve. Verse 24. The sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin. And from Joseph, we are told in Genesis 46:20, came Manasseh and Ephraim, and hence the two tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim. And from Benjamin came the tribe of Benjamin. So that three tribes of Israel came from the patriarch Jacob and his wife Rachel. Now on the precise chronology found in my book, Creation Not Evolution, Mind Creation, not uh, Macroevolution, uh, Mind the Gap. Uh, volume two, part six, the Patriarch Jacob lived from twenty forty-six to eighteen ninety-nine BC, whereas uh, Jeremiah 1-2 uh, dates to the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, which is about 625 BC. And so when the prophet Jeremy wrote of Rachel in Jeremiah 31:15, she had been dead for over 12 and a half centuries. And so this uh, raises the question, in what sense can Holy Jeremy refer to Rahel weeping for her children because they were not? Well, before we can answer that question, we must thirdly consider the usage of an appropriate woman to type the church in Holy Scripture. The Jewish church is described as God's bride in Jeremiah 3.8. And following her Isaiah 50, verse 1, divorcement for unfaithfulness, the Christian church, as a universal or Catholic church, is described as Christ's bride in Ephesians 5:31 and 32. Or in 2 Corinthians 11:2, we read, I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And in this context, God sometimes selects a particular woman to type the church. Thus, in uh, Revelation 12.1, the church is depicted as a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet. <clears throat> and uh, this imagery is of what the Anglican uh, 1662 Book of Common Prayer calls the church militant here in earth, as seen by the words of Song of Solomon 6.10, describing King Solomon's bride. Who is she that looketh forth as the morning, fair as the moon? clear as the sun and terrible as an army with banners. <clears throat> and given that the Song of Solomon applies initially to God and the Jewish church and then in its later fulfillment to Christ and the church, it follows that this interconnection between Revelation 12.1 and Song of Solomon 6.10 is a contextual indicator that one first uh, makes an application of the Revelation 12.1 woman to the Jewish church up till 33 AD for following the Acts 7 stoning of St Stephen. She received the Isaiah 50 verse 1 divorcement for unfaithfulness. And then the Christian church takes over as Christ's bride. And so one then makes a second application of Revelation 12 of the Revelation 12.1 woman to the Christian church from 33 AD. <coughs> And so in Revelation 12, 1 and 2 we read of <clears throat> a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of 12 stars and she being with child cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. Verse 5. And she brought forth a man-child which on the first application of the Revelation 12, 1 woman to the Jewish church till 33 AD means the Revelation 12, 1, 12 stars are the Revelation 21, 12, 12 patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the Revelation 12, 1 and 2 woman being with child (coughs) is the Jewish church as artistically typed by St. Mary, the mother of Jesus, who in St. Matthew 1 and St. Luke 1 had a a literal nine-month pregnancy followed by the physical birth of Christ remembered in church tradition in uh, the Anglican 1662 Book of Common Prayer calendar in the nine months from Annunciation Day on 25 March to Christmas Day on 25 December, so that the Revelation 12.5 man-child that the Jewish church brought forth via and, typed and as typed by Mary is Jesus. <clears throat> and then, on the second application of the Revelation 12 1 woman to the uh, uh, Christian church from 31, uh, 33 AD, the Revelation 12-1-12 stars are the Revelation 21 14, 12 apostles. And the 121 and 2 woman being with child is the Christian church, as artistically typed by... St. Helene or Helena, the mother of Constantine the Great. For a pregnancy is generally for about nine months or 280 days. <clears throat> and on the Protestant Historicist Day Year principle of prophetic interpretation, as found in Ezekiel 4, 4 to 6, this would be a Christian church pregnancy of about 280 years from 33 AD, which brings us on inclusive reckoning to about 312 AD, plus or minus one year followed by the spiritual birth of Constantine. Now, this is the era of Constantine the Great, who in 311 was a supporting name to the Edict of Toleration, and Constantine also promulgated the Edict of Milan in 313, both of which were relevant to legalising Christianity and also in time relevant to the establishment principle of Psalm 210 10-12, Proverbs 8, 12-15, Isaiah 49, 22-23, and, and Romans 10:11 of a Christian state as set forth in Article 37 of the Anglican 39 Articles. St. Constantine's conversion means that around this time of 312 AD, plus or minus one year, he was a Hebrews 5.13 babe in Christ, and hence referred to in Revelation 12.5 as a man-child. Although in this sense of babe, his maturation to one of the Hebrews 5.14 Full age is indicated by the fact of his ruling of nations in Revelation 12.5 and St. Constantine thus types the saints of God who following the second advent are to rule with Christ. (coughs) Furthermore in the words of St. Luke 10.21 all saints are babes in their humility in that by God's grace they humbly look unto Almighty God so that in Saint Mark ten fourteen to sixteen, Jesus took up little children in his arms, put his arms upon them and blessed them, saying, Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. And in this sense of St. Luke ten twenty one, Babe, Saint Constantine the Great did in the words of St. Luke eighteen seventeen, so receive the kingdom of God as a little child. As seen, for example, in the fact that by the will and commandment of this prince was gathered together the General Council of Nicaea in 325, which produced Orthodox, Trinitarian, and creedal teaching, so that what is called in Article 8 of the Anglican 39 Articles, the Nicene Creed, was named after and partly written by this Nicene Council. And though Constantine's mother, Helene, or Helena, converted to Christianity after Constantine, the implication in Revelation 12, 1-5 is that Helena the mother of Constantine, is post facto selected to represent the Christian church. And so in the imagery of Revelation 12 in its second application to the Christian church, as typed by the woman of Helene, the uh, mother of Constantine, the conversions of both St. Constantine and his mother, St. Helene or Helena, are set before us as examples of two saints of God who were soundly converted and regenerated by the power of the Holy Ghost. And St. Constantine, who died in 337, and his mother, St. Helene, who died in 328, are remembered in church tradition in the Anglican 1662 Book of Common Prayer calendar in Black Letter Days with invention of the Cross Day on 3 May, remembering St. Helene in connection with St. Constantine, and Holy Cross Day on 14 September, remembering St. Constantine, both of whom are also favorably remembered in Article 35 of the Anglican 39 Articles. And so with respect to the fact that God sometimes selects a particular woman to type the church, in the Revelation 12, 1-5 double double application, he used St. Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, to type the Jewish church up to 33 AD, and St. Helene the mother of St. Constantine the Great, to type the Christian church from 33 AD. And so too in St. John 20, we find that St. Mary Magdalene is used as a type of the church. We read in St. John 1941 that she is in a garden, and Jesus comes looking for her, saying in St. John 20, 15 and 16, Woman, whom seekest thou? Jesus saith unto her, Mary. She turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say master. And so in contrast to man's fall and associated isolation from God in the Garden of Eden, where there was Adam, Eve, and God looking for a man when he fell into sin. And the Lord God called unto Adam, Where art thou? As Adam and Eve were in hiding. We find in St John 20, The second Adam of Christ, who is fully man, in a garden with a, a representative woman of the redeemed church, Mary Magdalene, and a Christ, who is fully God, calling for the woman. And so in the typology of redemption in John 20, Mary Magdalene, a woman redeemed by the grace of God of whom we are told in Mark 16.9, Jesus had cast seven devils, is used as a symbol to type the redeemed church. For the Eden lost of Genesis 3 is restored by Christ's atonement in the imagery of John 20. And so, the big point is that God sometimes selects a particular woman to type the church, such as his selection of St. Mary Magdalene in St. John 20, to type the redeemed church. Or in Revelation 12.1, the Revelation 12.1 double application, he used St. Mary, the mother of Jesus, to type the Jewish church up till 33 AD, and St. Helene, or Helena, the mother of St. Constantine the Great, to type the Christian church from 33 AD. (coughs) And so against this wider biblical teaching, it follows that when we read in Jeremiah 31.15 that Rahel is weeping, this is not literally the wife of the patriarch Jacob, Rachel, who was long dead and buried, but the Jewish church as artistically typed by Rachel. And to the question, why is Rahel or Rachel an appropriate woman to select to type the Jewish church in Jeremiah 31.15? The answer is that she was the favoured wife of the patriarch, Jacob, who in the context of Jeremiah 30 and 31 is referred to in Jeremiah 30.10 as a synonym for Israel. Fear thou not, O my servant Jacob, saith the Lord. Neither be dismayed, O Israel. <coughs> and in Jeremiah 31.1, we read of all the families of Israel. <coughs> and in verse 11, For the Lord hath redeemed Jacob and so the usage of jacob for israel it is it, it, so that with uh, uh, this usage i should say of jacob for israel it is contextually appropriate to use this patriarch's favored wife uh, rachel as a symbol to type the jewish church when jeremiah says in jeremiah 31:15 thus saith the Lord. A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rahel, weeping for her children, refused to be comforted for her children because they were not. And so with regard to these words of Jeremiah 31.15, let us now put together these three points. To wit, Firstly, that a voice was heard in Ramah refers in the immediate sense to lamentation and bitter weeping for those of the Jewish church who as part of the 6th century BC Babylonian captivity were being held at the Ramah detention centre for captives in Judah where evidently some of these captive prisoners rather than being deported to Babylon had in fact been killed there so that Jeremy saith certain Jewish children were not uh, alive anymore. And secondly, that Rahel weeping for her children refers to Rachel, the favoured wife of the patriarch Jacob, who thirdly is here selected as an appropriate symbol to type the Jewish church. And what this means is that in an immediate first sense of the words of Jeremiah 31.15, thus saith the Lord, a voice was heard in Rama, lamentation, And bitter weeping. Rahel weeping for her children refused to be comforted for her children because they were not. This refers to those of the Jewish church in the 6th century BC weeping over Jewish children who had been killed at Rama detention centre. However, there is also a second prophetic sense to these words. For as we have already discussed in the wider context of Jeremiah thirty and thirty-one, the deliverance or redemption from the sixth century BC or before Christ, Babylonian captivity, is a prophetic type of the greater deliverance or redemption from sin procured by the Jeremiah thirty-one twenty-two Virgin-born Messiah, or Christ, who in Jeremiah twenty-three, six and thirty-three, sixteen is called the Lord our righteousness whose righteousness is imputed to believers of faith in him under the Jeremiah 31, 31 and 34 new covenant, in which God will forgive iniquity and remember sin no more. And indeed, before these words of Jeremiah 31, 15, in the immediately preceding verses of Jeremiah 31, 10 to 14, as we have already seen, the post-exilic deliverance is clearly typing elements of both the first and second advents of Christ and the comfort of Christ's and the comfort Christ's salvation brings. Now, for instance, we read in Jeremiah 31, 33, I will turn their mourning into joy and will comfort them. But this comfort that Christ brings in Jeremiah 31, 10 to 14 is then jarringly contrasted in the next verse of Jeremiah thirty-one fifteen, with the words, A voice was heard in Rama, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rahel, weeping for her children. Refused to be comforted. Fuch. Because, refused to be comforted for her children. Because uh, they were not. And therefore, a contextual contrast on the word uh, comfort, which is the Hebrew verb nakam in both Jeremiah 31 13 and 15 Acts to give a stylistic uh, linking contrast between the words of Jeremiah 31 10 to 14 and these words of uh, Jeremiah 31 15. And uh, so, <clears throat> given that in its immediate first fulfillment, the Jewish church, as symbolically typed by Rachel, is weeping at the time of the return of the exiles from Babylon for the Jewish children who had been killed in Judah. And at this point the Jewish children, though the Jewish church, as typed by uh, Rachel, refused to be comforted. But in verse thirteen there is a promise that the Lord will turn their mourning into joy. It follows in connection with the words a comfort and mourning in Jeremiah thirty one thirteen, that there is to be a greater fulfilment of Jeremiah thirty one fifteen, in connection with the Messiah, in which God will, in connection with Christ's work, give comfort to those so mourning. And so it follows on the basis of the contextual contrast of Jeremiah 31.10-14 to 14, referring to Christ's work of redemption that these words of Jeremiah 31.15 must in their greatest second fulfilment at the Messiah or Christ's coming depict a scene of the Jewish church as typed by Rachel <coughs> in lamentation and bitter weeping for her, for her children that are not because they have been killed by a pagan power as typed by uh, pagan uh, Babylon <coughs> and so with this understanding of the prophecy of Holy Jeremy and Jeremiah thirty-one fifteen, requiring that at Christ's first advent the Jewish church will be weeping over children killed in some connection with the events of the Redeemer Christ's first advent we turn uh, to the gospel according to St. Matthew chapter 2 verse 16 <coughs> Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceedingly wroth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Uh, Now, Herod (coughs) was a ruler who had the authority of pagan Rome. And so Babylon here types Rome, as it does elsewhere in the New Testament. And uh, St. Matthew uh, then says in uh, uh, St. Matthew 2, 17 and 18, Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet saying, in Rama was there a voice heard lamentation and weeping and great mourning Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they are not Uh, and as more fully discussed in my textual commentaries uh, volume 1 on Matthew 1 to 14 at Matthew 2.18 St. Matthew here joins together the words, in Rama (coughs) there was a voice heard There was a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great from Jeremiah 31.15. Then mourning from Jeremiah 31.13. Then Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they are not. From Jeremiah 31.15. And as I uh, there say, quote, The words of Holy Scripture here are very particular. St. Matthew does not say spoken by Jeremy the prophet in the same verse, but rather spoken by Jeremy the prophet. St. Matthew is in fact putting together two verses from Jeremiah, not one. The full impact of greater bitter weeping, Jeremiah 31.15, my translation, requires an outgrowth as an outgrowth the associated great bitter weeping, Jeremiah 31.15, my translation. The mourning must therefore also be great. Matthew 2, 18, <clears throat> Now, what's interesting about this Matthean quote is that the words of Jeremiah 31, 15, lamentation and bitter weeping, which as further discussed in my textual commentaries, volume 1 on Matthew 1 to 14 at Matthew two, eighteen, would be better rendered. Lamentation and great bitter weeping are united with the word mourning of Jeremiah 31, 13, which says, I will turn their mourning into joy and will comfort them. So that in its greater fulfillment, our nexus is here highlighted by the Holy Ghost, speaking through St. Matthew, between Jeremiah 31, verses 13 and 15. This is most apt. For as we have already seen, there is a contextual contrast on the word comfort in both Jeremiah 31, 13 and 15 which acts to give a stylistic linking contrast between both the words of Jeremiah thirty-one ten to 14 and also the words of Jeremiah thirty-one fifteen. And there is a contextual contrast between the Jewish church as symbolically typed by Rachel weeping over the children who had been killed in Judah in the Babylonian captivity of the 6th century BC in which the Jewish church refused to be comforted in verse 15. And the verse 13 promise uh, that the Lord will turn their mourning into joy so that this requires the conclusion of a greater fulfillment to this prophecy in in which God will, will, in connection with Christ's work, give comfort to those. So, mourning. Under the question, what is that greater comfort? The answer is succinctly found in the words of two Timothy one eight to ten The gospel according to the power of God who hath saved us, and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purposes and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Saviour Jesus Christ, and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. <clears throat> uh, note those words of St. Paul in 2 Timothy 1, 8-10, that the gospel of God who hath saved us is not new to the New Testament. Uh, for God's grace, that is, his unmerited favor in saving us in Christ Jesus, dates from before the world began. And so was certainly present in Old Testament times. For uh, men who have been saved have always been saved by the same covenant of grace. Although as a covenant inside a covenant, it was administered uh, differently in the Old Testament than in the New Testament. But uh, that gospel of God's grace we are told in 2 Timothy 1.10, is now made manifest by the appearing of our Saviour Jesus Christ and hath brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. Uh, put simply, we who have the New Testament revelation of God have a much clearer understanding of a number of relevant particulars of the covenant of grace than, than did those who had only the Old Testament revelation. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, with respect to uh, a man's world, uh, which began with the Edenic creation of Genesis 1 and 2, following on from Genesis 1 two. Uh, Zechariah saith in the Benedictus of St. Luke 1, 68 to 79 at verse 70, that God's holy prophets have been since the world begun. And so those people living in Old Testament times sometimes got information from a prophet of God that's not recorded in the Holy Bible. Uh, for example, Joshua 10.13 and 2 Samuel 1.18 refers to the book of Jasher, and possibly, though not certainly, Jasher was a prophet. But while we can't be sure whether or not he was a prophet, if he was a prophet, then it's clear that his book formed no part of God's purpose, purposes of the uh, St. Matthew 5.18 and 1 Peter 1.25 divine preservation of Scripture and was meant only for a local period of time in the Old Testament. <clears throat> And so those in the Old Testament still had enough uh, revelation to be saved under the covenant of grace, evident in for example the fact that hebrews eleven seven says "Noah became heir of the righteousness which is by faith Romans four four says with reference to genesis fifteen six for that for what saith the scripture, Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness and romans four six to eight says with reference to Psalm 32, 1 and 2. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. You see, in the Old Testament, Noah, Abraham, David, and anyone else who was saved was saved the same way that anyone who is saved from New Testament times on is saved because anyone who is saved has always and is always saved the same way to wit under the covenant of grace referred to in Hebrews 13:20 as the everlasting covenant But having said that I should also say that while I believe in the equal divine inspiration of all scripture I'm now a sexagenarian and there is nevertheless a reason why since I was a teenager I've carried around with me a New Testament and Psalms, or when I was younger, sometimes a New Testament with Psalms and Proverbs. And the reason for that is not that I disbelieve in or don't read the Old Testament, because I do. For example, I've never supported the Marcionite, a heresy of the heretic Marcion, who was recorded in the 2nd century AD by Irenaeus, in his work entitled Against Heresy, are denied substantial parts of the New Testament, and also denied substantial parts of much, if not all, the Old Testament. Nor have I ever supported the type of semi-Marcionite anti-Old Testament attitudes associated with the Campbellites, <coughs> connected with the sectarian named Churches of Christ, in which Alexander Campbell who died in 1866, while not rejecting the Old Testament in form, (coughs) largely did so in substance by wrongly emphasising the New Testament to the practical exclusion of the Old Testament, thereby in fact greatly perverting the New Testament, which clearly upholds the Old Testament. (coughs) And so (coughs) I do not devalue the Old Testament (coughs) like the Marcionites proper or semi-Marcionite uh, Campbellites. Uh, for uh, the uh, New Testament is uh, like the horse and the Old Testament uh, like uh, the buggy uh, that the horse pulls. The two go together. Uh, rather, <coughs> my understanding... ...for carrying around the New Testament, albeit with the Old Testament book of Psalms as well. is that, due to space limitations, I carry around only a portion of God's Word. And the New Testament is more important for believers than, for example, the same amount of Scripture... ...which is found in the Old Testament books of Joshua to Job. If you said to me, Gavin, here's a copy of Joshua to Job, it's the same size as your New Testament... Why don't you carry it around instead of carrying around the New Testament? I would respectfully decline your invitation. That's not because I don't believe in the full inspiration of Joshua to Job. And I have them all in my full King James Bibles that I keep at home or in my car or in the church here today. Uh, but I carry around the New Testament in the, the present uh, King James Version Pocket Edition, uh, Uh, In in my breast pocket I've got uh, also with the Psalms uh, because the New Testament is uh, more important for believers. The New Testament gives a clarity to a number of matters to do with the Holy Trinity and gospel of Jesus Christ that the Old Testament doesn't do in the same way. Uh, For in the words of the Holy Ghost, speaking through St. Paul and St. Apollos in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. And I can only know what the Son of God hath spoken from the New Testament, most especially in the four Gospels. And uh, so... <clears throat> uh, and and, and uh, so, uh, St. So Paul in uh, 2 Timothy 1 8 to 10 says, The gospel of God's grace is now made manifest by the appearing of our Saviour Jesus Christ, and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That is to say, we have the New Testament revelation of God, we who have the New Testament revelation of God have a much clearer understanding of a number of relevant particulars of the covenant of grace as found in religiously conservative Protestant Christianity than those who have only the Old Testament revelation. Thus while all Scripture is equally inspired, not all Scripture is equally important for the Christian That doesn't mean that like the Marcionites or Campbellites, we shouldn't properly study all of Scripture or not recognize all of its authority. But it does mean there's a priority in first understanding some key portions, uh, such as the message of having faith in the God-man Saviour and Lord of the four Gospels, Jesus Christ, and also understanding other portions of the New Testament, such as the Pauline epistles of Romans and Galatians. And indeed, I support an emphasis on the four Gospels, in that one both uses the four Gospels to better understand the rest of Holy Scripture, and one also uses the rest of Holy Scripture to better understand the four Gospels. For in St. Luke ten twenty-three to 24 Christ saith unto his disciples, A Blessed are the eyes which see the things that ye see, For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which ye see and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear and have not heard them. And uh, hence we read in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners (coughs) spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. <coughs> and this emphasis is reflected in the church tradition of standing when the gospel is read at Ante communion or communion in the Anglican 1662 Book of Common Prayer. For Christ is Christianity and Christianity is Christ. I do not say that one is obligated by God's command to stand when the gospel is read and the Puritans finding no specific command in Scripture to do so historically have not done so. And nor do we Anglicans stand when the Gospel is read if and when it is the second lesson at the offices of either morning prayer or evening prayer. But finding this tradition to be not contrary to God's Word written, the Anglican Church tradition of the 1662 Book of Common Prayer is to stand when the Gospel is read at ante communion or communion. For Christ is Christianity, and Christianity is Christ. In terms of experiential Christianity, upon repenting of one's sins, as chiefly found in the Ten Commandments, and turning to Christ as man's only saviour from sin, and our Lord who died in our place and for our sins under Pontius Pilate at Calvary, before rising again the third day, one can experience regeneration by the Holy Ghost. And one can experience the illuminating power of the Holy Ghost bringing to one's mind the meaning of Holy Scripture. And one can experience the convicting power of the Holy Ghost as to the meaning of Holy Scripture. And one can experience the presence of God, the Holy Ghost, the Comforter in one's life. But one cannot know Christ without knowing the Scriptures in general and the four Holy Gospels in particular. Because God has revealed himself to mankind in the divine revelation of the Holy Bible. And the work of the Holy Ghost in a believer's heart and mind and soul is indissolubly intertwined with God's revelation in the Holy Bible. And so in terms of the specifics of the God we worship and adore and pray to, and who answers our prayers, apart from some broad natural law areas such as the creation, fact of his eternal power and Godhead, Uh, We cannot know the details of what this God is really like that we pray to if we do not know His divine revelation of Himself in the Holy Scriptures. And that now uh, brings me back uh, to the issue of God's divine revelation of Himself in the Holy Scriptures. And a relevant quote on this from Baron Banside, or Ian Paisley, who died in 2014. Uh, For because in this wicked age, under Bob Jones Jr., who died in 1997, Bob Jones University honoured God by opposing one of the chief itemised sins of the antediluvians, found in both Genesis 6 and St Matthew 24, namely racially mixed marriages, there was still a peculiar blessing of God upon them, albeit relativistically diminished from what that blessing had been under Bob Jones, Sr., who was additionally a racial segregationist in harmony with Genesis 9-11. to And this blessing of God is reflected in the 1983 address at Bob Jones University of Ian Paisley or Baron Banside, upholding the King James Bible of 1611 entitled The Authority of Scripture Versus Confusion of Modern English Translations. At the time, Ian Paisley made this address in 1983. He was the moderator of the Free Presbyterian Church of Ulster in Northern Ireland, UK. And from 2010, he became Baron Banside of North Antrim, Northern Ireland, in the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. The later Baron made these comments as the co-chairman of the World Congress of Fundamentalists, in which the other co-chairman was Bob Jones II and at the time he was the Chancellor of Bob Jones University, USA, which is where this address was made. The address is not without some error and contains the error of the majority text burgeonites as opposed to the received text. But as, as a package, the good in this address so greatly outweighs the small amount of bad in it that I find it a great pleasure to listen to. And I thank God for the privilege of having an audio recording of it. Of uh, relevance, <clears throat> Ian Paisley, a later baron Banside, says, quoting Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, quote, "A God, who at sundry times, Hebrews 1, and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things by whom also he made the worlds. Christ cannot be known apart from the scriptures. The only authority I have on Christ is the Bible and the Bible alone. The only teaching about Christ is in the Bible. Christ cannot be known apart from this book. Those who do not know this book do not honour Jesus Christ. Those who do not believe this book do not believe on Jesus Christ. And those who do not submit themselves to this book do not submit themselves to Jesus Christ. Christ is the only way to God. And this book is the only way to Christ. Touch this book anywhere and you'll touch Christ somewhere. Unquote. And so, let me say very clearly, one both uses the four Holy Gospels to better understand the rest of Holy Scripture. And one also uses the rest of Holy Scripture to better understand the four Holy Gospels. For in the words of St. Paul in 2 Timothy 1, 8-10, the Gospel of God's grace is now made manifest by the appearing of our Saviour Jesus Christ, and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And so, in the, the prophecy of Jeremiah 31, 13 and 15, in its greater fulfillment in St. Matthew two, sixteen to eighteen, this is relevant to the Jeremiah thirty one thirteen promise that the Lord will turn their mourning into joy. And associated question What is the greater comfort of Christ's work? that uh, gives comfort to those so mourning? Uh, The answer is in the words of 2 Timothy 1, 8-10. The gospel of God who hath saved us according to grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Saviour Jesus Christ and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And one element of that, although not the only element of that, is the matter discussed in my four sermons of the fourth day of Christmas, Holy Innocence Day, the 28th of December 2020, and four sermons of the following, a fifth day of Christmas, the 29th of December 2020, that in broad terms what was considered in that sermon on uh, the issue of children dying <coughs> uh, before they commit actual sin, which in the Christian context, as taught in such scriptures as Acts 2.38-39 and 39, and 1 Corinthians 7.14, in harmony with Article 17 of the Anglican 39 Articles, the Presbyterian Westminster Confession 10.3, and the Dutch Reformed Synod of Dort at the first head of doctrine, Article 17 as a general but not absolute rule, is stated in the Anglican 1662 Book of Common Prayer as that we may determine, quote, by God's word, that children which are baptised, dying before they commit actual sin, are undoubtedly saved, unquote. I say this is a general, not absolute biblical rule because water baptism is a symbol. It is nothing more than a symbol and nothing less than a symbol. But it is an important biblical symbol. And firstly... It sometimes transpires that the parental profession of faith is disgenuine. Uh, Matthew 13, 25 to 30, and 36 to 43, and 1 John 2 19. And so, since the symbol of water baptism evidences parental faith, and since that faith is sometimes disgenuine, I say that it is a genuine, not absolute, biblical rule. And secondly, if, for example, one could confidently ascertain that one or both parents were. Are genuinely intending to get a child baptized and the child died before this symbol of water baptism was administered, or if something intervened and inhibited the baptism, then one would still have the same basic fruit of obedience evidence evident uh, as if the baptism had been administered. <clears throat> and to the issue of what might so intervene, I regret to say the answer is sometimes a bad clergyman who wrongly refuses to to baptise an infant. For example, in medieval times, certain Roman Catholic priests sometimes refused to baptise a child unless money was paid that the poor could not always afford. Or I've heard a number of horror stories of certain semi-Puritan a so-called Anglican clergyman in the Diocese of Sydney, refusing to baptise children unless the parents are regular Sunday attendees of their church, which is the Puritan Congregationalist type of view, not the Anglican type of view, which in harmony with Article 37 of the 39 Articles believes in the desirability of a Protestant Christian state church under the establishment principle of such scriptures as Isaiah forty nine twenty two and 23. And so for the purposes of administering baptism in general, general accepts the profession of faith of parents if they are prepared to make it in accordance with a baptism service in the 1662 Book of Common Prayer in which in harmony with Article 34 of the 39 articles parents may act as the godparents for infants. And so I repeat that as taught in such scriptures as Acts 2.38 and 39 and 1 Corinthians 7.14. As a general but not absolute rule, in the words of the Anglican 1662 Book of Common Prayer, we may determine, quote, by God's word, that children which are baptised, dying before they commit actual sin, are undoubtedly saved. Unquote. <clears throat> and <clears throat> in harmony with Colossians two, eleven, and 13, to thirteen. 11 to 13. This teaching uh, may, in broad terms, have its principles applied before but not after Christian times to the Jewish church, not uh, with reference to New Testament baptism, but with reference to Old Testament mild circumcision, with the consequence that we uh, can say that these are St. Matthew 2.16, Jewish children that were in Bethlehem, and in all the coasts thereof, from two years old and under, whom Herod slew, uh, would not have been permitted by God to have been killed if they had not been elect vessels, as outwardly evidenced as a general, though not absolute rule, in pre-Christian Jewish times, although no longer applicable from Christian times, by the fact that the parents had the male children amongst them circumcised on the eighth day. And so to the question, what is the comfort that those whose children were killed that Christ's first advent may have? uh, The answer is, it is the comfort of redemption in Christ, which they may know must be applicable to their children. What a truly amazing fulfilment all this is of biblical prophecy in Jeremiah 31, 13 and 15. And what a clear evidence this is of the divine inspiration of Holy Scripture. And so, on this Accession Day 2021, amidst the horrors of this shocking mass murder of children by Herod that was discussed in my sermon of 29 December 2020 in connection with Holy Innocence Day of 28 December, our prepubescent children, for example, those dying before they commit actual sins saved, Part 8. We can give the comforting message of the gospel of Jesus Christ that these children were inside the covenant of grace as it was uh, then administered under the Old Testament so that they were saved and their souls went to heaven. In the words of Psalm 136.1, O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy for forever. Let us pray. <clears throat> o Almighty God, before whom, as revealed to us by thy holy prophet Daniel, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and thou dost, th- th- Thou doest according to thy will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay thy hand or say unto thee, What doest thou? We stand in awe of thy great majesty and power. For thou madest infants to glorify thee by thy deaths under Herod. For in doing so they fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, thus testifying to the divine inspiration of thy holy word. We worship thee and praise thy name, for thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. And we give glory to Thee, Almighty Father, for the fact that by the messianic prophecies of Jeremiah 30 and 31 and elsewhere, we may know that the 39 Old Testament and 27 New Testament canonical books of the Holy Bible are divinely preserved by Thee and Thy authoritative divine revelation to man. And so we give thanks and glory to Thee, Father Almighty, through Jesus Christ our Lord, Amen.